Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast. Taking a look inside your genes. Summer loving is in the air, so what better time to think about sex? But we're not going to get graphic, we're talking about the genetics of sex determination. There are a lot of fish that actually flip, so they start out as one sex, and when there's some sort of cue, they flip to the other one. Plus, why turkeys need a wingman, figuring out fingerprints, and a leggy gene of the month. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for July 2013, with me, Dr Katarni, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Genetically speaking, our human species is broadly divided into male and female, determined by our sex chromosomes. That's XX for females and XY for men, although there are people whose chromosomes don't strictly conform to this for various reasons. But the way that we do sex, at least on a genetic level, isn't the only way to do it. To find out more, I spoke to Judith Mank, Professor of Evolutionary and Comparative Biology at University College London. I started by asking her what, biologically speaking, do we actually mean by sex? So sex can be two things. So it's the act of actual, it's called syngamy, so the combination of eggs and sperm. But related to that, so what we study is the evolution of sexual dimorphism, so how you get separate males and females. So males and females often look different, they act different, and that's what we study in the group. A lot of us are familiar with the idea that humans have an X and a Y chromosome Mm -hmm. if you're a man and an X and X if you're a a female. Is this the only way of doing it? No, there's a million different ways. So um, there are a lot of fish that actually flip partway through their life. So they start out as one sex, and when there's some sort of cue, they flip to the other one. Um, Interestingly, it seems that within a a couple hours of the cue, their brain starts changing. Um, They start acting like the other sex, and it takes about three days after that for the gonad to follow. Their body completely changes as well to the other gender. Yep, and they start reproducing within about three days as the other sex. There are a lot of animals that are XY, like mammals are, um, but with different sort of independent X and Y chromosomes. Um, And we study in the group, uh, we do a lot of work on birds, which are Z and W. So in that case, the male has two Z chromosomes and the female has one Z and one W. So the the W is quite similar to the Y that you see in humans. Now, this seems quite strange that there would be so many different ways of doing this in in the natural kingdom. How has this arisen? That's actually the big question of the moment, to be honest. So... Um, No one really understands how something so fundamental as how you determine sex changes. Um, The only thing that we do understand is that this this old idea of conservation, so you've got the same sex-determining system in most mammals, you've got the same system in birds, you've got the same system in uh, fruit flies, that idea 
that sex should be conserved is is clearly not true. Um, so you've got some systems like fish, where within populations you've got multiple mechanisms of sex determination, and it changes very very quickly. Um, and it, that seems to be much more common. If you're going to have sexual reproduction, mm-hmm. you need a, a, a male and a female, or you know, two two different things to to make it work and producing eggs and sperm. Mm-hmm. Are there any inklings of maybe how these kind of mechanisms, the sex chromosomes, have arisen, at least in in some of the animals or some of the creatures you studied? So there's a lot of theory. Um, Not a lot of it has been really well proved. Um, But most people think that if you've got a gene that determines sex, so say a gene that makes you male, um, and there could be several different genes that might predispose you toward being male, but if that gene is linked, is, is physically very close to another gene that confers some male benefit. So if you have both of them, you're both a male and you're a very fit male, you're a good male, then that sort of sends you along the path to having a Y chromosome. But if you have a gene that confers, that, that makes you female, and that's close to another gene that, that makes you a very good female, then that would sort of send you along the path to a W chromosome. And what is the advantage of actually having two sexes? Because you think about, well, something like an amoeba, it just splits itself, it reproduces seems to be kind of fine. Bacteria seem kind of fine. Um, What is the actual advantage of having different different sexes? Well, there's two things. So one, some things have sex but don't have obligate sex. They don't always have to have sex. They can sometimes um, reproduce clonally. Like Uh, a yeast? Like a yeast, some fish, uh, a lot of plants. So occasional sex is useful in that it helps you adapt more um, to changing environments and to outpace um, parasites and things like that to, to sort of keep your um, immunity up. So you're kind of mixing your genes up, exactly. makes you a bit fitter. Yeah, exactly. Having obligate sex like we do means that you avoid any sort of inbreeding um, or you, you minimise inbreeding. So if you can't mate with yourself, um, you avoid having uh, two copies of recessive deleterious alleles. Um, in theory, the offspring are fitter. Um, they do better. That's the idea. And one of the things I'm very interested in in your work is the idea of, of conflict within the sexes. This isn't sort of the battle of the sexes, <laughs> men versus women. This is kind of conflict between genes uh, at this kind of level. Tell me more about that. If you, if you think about it in humans, men and women have... They only differ on the Y chromosome. And the Y only has a few dozen genes at most. And so for 99.99% of genes, they both have them. Um, but yet... Men and women look different, they act different, they have different interests, sort of as a sex. And so that means that the optimal function of any gene can differ between men and women. So it's this idea of, of conflict over the optimal usage of a given gene. So the, the, the genes that you have on your sex chromosomes maybe kind of determine how the other genes get used? Well, you can have conflict without sex chromosomes. So there are lots of animals that have lots of conflict and don't have sex chromosomes at all. Conflict can be on any in any part of the genome. Um, any gene that codes a phenotype, some sort of form that has um, that differs between males and females. So if you think about behavior, um, so we work on birds a lot. Um, males often find the highest point they can and scream their heads off, you know, so that the, the females notice notice them. And that's not great if a female does that because she doesn't get any benefit from it. Um, males don't really take any notice of it, and it makes her much more conspicuous to predators. So the gene that encodes that behavior is under conflict. So males want that be- that behavior, females don't. Or fem- males benefit from it, females don't. So there's this conflict over what it causes. And do we know anything about what helps to kind of establish which way you go with it? Is there, is there a role of hormones? Is there a role of the environment? Anything? 
uh, hormones can kind of resolve this conflict in a way. So if you get one of those genes under the control of a sex hormone, that means that it's only going to be expressed in one sex, and that resolves all the conflicts. So if you, they both got the gene, but only one of them uses it. What for you is the thing that when you discovered it was like, wow, that's, that's weird? That changes by the moment. But I think the thing that I'm most obsessed with it currently is this the study we just did in in turkeys. And I didn't know about this until I went up and talked to a breeder. So turkeys actually come in two male uh, phenotypes, two male forms. So there's this dominant male, um, and then there's the subordinate male. And the dominant male and the subordinate males, they're actually brothers. So all the brothers in a given clutch, the winter before they mature, get together and they battle it out for who's going to become dominant. Uh, the dominant male has these sexually selected traits. He's got this big tail. He's got this this um, iridescent plumage. He makes that really goofy gobbling sound. He has a snood and a waddle and a couple other things. The subordinate male has most of those, but a little bit less. And the subordinate males actually advertise for females with their dominant brother. And there's some evidence that having a lot of very attractive subordinate males actually pulls more females in, but they never mate. Um, all the matings go to their dominant brother. They never try and buck the system. Um, So they never try and push off the dominant brother. And we were interested in the gene expression patterns underlying this. Um, Because this is like a wingman, basically. Well, literally. (laughs) Wingmen, exactly. Yeah, it's this really bizarre system. And I had no idea this was going on until I went up to this breeder in Yorkshire and she showed me, you know, the the way it works. And then I started reading about it. And it's amazing. It's also the least tractable system in the world. These things take two years to mature. They're big. They're mean. They're expensive. They don't like people. Um, They're not ideal in that sense. But it's just fantastic. So we were interested in sort of the gene expression differences between the dominant and subordinate male, because both are male, but in some senses the dominant male is a bit bit more male in terms of all these traits he's got. And it was really amazing. For thousands of genes, the subordinate male was a little bit less male in expression and a little bit more female. They only differed from the dominant brothers by a few genes, you know, very much. There were only like four or five genes that differed a lot. But across the spectrum of all, you know, 7,000 expressed genes, they show these very subtle differences that affect the phenotype sort of as an aggregate. Almost, I guess, like kind of a third sex for turkeys? Not quite. But if you think about sort of sex along an axis, um, they're not, they're, they're clearly on the male side, but they're just a little bit less male. Um, they're not intersex by any means. They, you know, they can reproduce if they, if they wish. <laughs> if they got the chance. Yeah, 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 exactly. That was Professor Judith Mank from UCL. Coming up later, we'll be finding out about another very important aspect of mammalian sex, how females manage to switch off one of their X chromosomes. But first, it's time to mull over one of this month's top genetics news stories with science writer Nell Barry. Hello. Hiya. And so a big news story that we touched on in last month's podcast was the expected patent ruling on Myriad Genetics about their their patents on the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. We were still waiting for a result last month, but it's come through. And the court, the US Supreme Court, has apparently judged that they cannot hold the patents on these genes. They are a, a work of nature and can't be patented. So this is broadly good news, yeah? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's one of those things where... People have talked about this for a while, and I think to most people who know a little bit about genes, it's always seemed kind of ridiculous that anyone would be allowed to patent something like a gene because it's like saying, well, I've got a patent on a cat or, you know, that bird flying over there, that's my that's my design. And it, it just seems completely not like a normal kind of patent. So 
you know, it's it's expected, but it was almost like, why why did that happen in the first place? It's a bit strange that that was that was allowed to happen. There were some things that the court said that Myriad could keep. What what were they? Yeah, so this is about cDNA, which is a copy of the DNA. So essentially, if you make an artificial copy of this gene because you've created that in the lab and it hasn't been created by nature. So that cDNA, you can still have a patent on that, is what the Supreme Court said. And cDNAs, because they're, they're kind of the gene, but with the, the bits that aren't important chopped out. And I think that's probably quite good for the biotech industry, because a lot of the stuff that biotech does is based around these cDNAs, the kind of the, the interesting gene bits. Um, the other thing I noticed was that the, uh, the Supreme Court said that Myriad can keep hold of their database too. Yeah, this is interesting, because, I mean, there's so much data out there now around looking at the genetics of different patients, looking at the genetics of different diseases. And we're increasingly seeing that, you know, people want to share this much more. They want to be able to use everybody else's data for their own research. In a way, that might seem like a bit of a shame, but Myriad certainly would argue that that's where they've invested their money, essentially. They put a lot of money into developing the tests that they've made. If we were to say we have to just share all all this stuff and you can't have patents on anything there'd be a lot of arguments about how the biotech industry would carry on. Where can you get the money for investment if you can't make any commercial gain out of it at all? So in one sense, you could say that this is a kind of measured compromise, I suppose. But it'll be interesting to see how it all affects genetic testing in the future. Myriad has said that they've been doing around 250,000 BRCA tests every year and it's cost around $4,000. And this is just in the US. The situation in the UK and other countries is different. But now it basically flings open the door for anyone to do genetic sequencing for these genes. So that's also a a hugely good thing. Yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of people would argue that that's great because you get the competition, you'll get some more kind of innovation around what types of different tests companies might come up with. They can improve them in different ways. And the other really exciting thing is you can add them to panel tests now because previously, because these tests were patented, you couldn't have them as part of a panel for wider, different mutations. Which is ridiculous, because they're the two key genes involved in breast cancer risk. Yeah, exactly. And there's also now a lot of big studies happening around the world, looking at different kinds of panel tests, not just for one specific type of cancer, but for genes relating to several different types of cancer in one go. So it'll be great if we can get to a point where we can sort of share more of this and have a bit more collaboration across all these research efforts. And hopefully this type of ruling will help that to happen better. And another ruling that's been in the news this month is that the UK government is pushing ahead with plans to allow doctors to create IVF babies with genetic material from three people. But what exactly is the technology about now? So I think... One thing the nerds may have objected to is this kind of term of three-person IVF because it does make it sound like you're getting genetic material from mum, dad and somebody else mixing it all together and creating some strange... Franken-baby! Yeah, exactly, Franken-baby. And actually, the third person is just supplying the mitochondria, so it's the mitochondrial DNA, which is, in a lot of ways, completely different from the normal genetic material that you get in a human cell. So the mitochondria are there as batteries essentially inside the cell and that was all explained really nicely I thought in a lot of the coverage it was you know what do mitochondria do how can mitochondria going wrong cause disease so we heard about that and essentially this is about replacing faulty mitochondria that have got something wrong in their genetic material with healthy mitochondria from a donor the mother and the father's DNA are exactly the same they mix together in exactly the same way as they would normally and you get a baby that doesn't have a problem with its mitochondria. So that's important to make it clear that it's the mum and the dad who want to have the baby, it's their genes, 
you're basically using a donor egg to provide the mitochondria that are faulty. It's relatively rare, the kind of diseases that are caused by these faulty mitochondria, but they're absolutely tragic and do affect families in in really devastating ways. So I think it's a very brave move. There is some opposition to it, though. Yeah, there is. And I mean, I was having a read of different people's opinions on this because I find this type of stuff really fascinating because it's the power of what science can do now and what people feel about that. And it's almost people have this very sort of visceral, emotional reaction to this type of advance. And there's all this talk of, you know, we're playing God, we shouldn't be making these decisions. But you're absolutely right. And one of the saddest things that came out for me was that some of these mitochondrial disorders, there isn't even a test for them. So you may know that you're at risk because you've had a baby who's died or a child that's affected, you have another child, and you've got no idea until that disease starts to actually show symptoms whether that child's got a problem or not. So this must just be really, really tough for parents to go through. And they'll sometimes have several children who all die at different stages. There's literally nothing they can do about this. And that's been the argument on the science side, that if we can do this, we should. And it's not going to be loads and loads of cases. I think it's going to be around five to ten cases every year once it starts, possibly by the end of 2014. But it's it's certainly a fascinating example of how building on things like IVF technology that started in the 70s, we can actually make real improvements for, for public health. And hopefully we'll start to see some babies born in the not-too-distant future. Thanks very much for that, Nell. That's Nell Barry, science writer. And now it's time for a roundup of the rest of this month's genetics news. Writing in the journal PNAS, researchers at the Monell Centre in the US have made the surprising discovery that two genes involved in taste also play a role in male fertility. While studying mice lacking the genes encoding two taste-signalling proteins, the scientists found they were unable to breed from male animals missing both proteins together, while animals missing just one could produce offspring just fine. Looking closer, the team found that a drug called clofibrate, which is commonly used to treat diseases such as high cholesterol, could block the human version of one of the proteins, called TAS1R3, but its effects were reversed when the drug was taken away. As well as having implications for rising rates of male infertility in many parts of the world, the researchers also think their findings could help to lead to new types of male contraceptives. Researchers at MIT have discovered that a gene called SIRT1, previously known to be involved in ageing and metabolism, also plays an important role in sleeping and waking patterns, known as circadian rhythms. Problems with the body clock have been linked to obesity and disorders such as diabetes, but it's not been clear how it's all connected. Publishing their findings in the journal Cell, Hun Chung Chang and Lenny Garente showed that circadian rhythms start to go awry in mice as they get older, and that this can be corrected by giving them more CERT1. The research suggests the exciting possibility that drugs that activate CERT1 could help to keep the body clock ticking as we age and stave off some of the associated health problems. Such drugs are already being tested against diabetes, inflammation and other diseases, but they don't cross into the brain where the body clock's main mechanism is kept. But Garenti thinks it should be possible to design drugs that get around this problem and help keep the clock ticking. If you want to find out more about those stories, the references are all on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be finding out how to make fingerprints, and our gene of the month has legs in all the wrong places. But now it's time to delve back into the world of sex, specifically sex chromosomes. 
In mammals, females have two X chromosomes, while males have an X and a Y. But this double dosage of the X chromosome can cause major problems for the ladies, as Professor Edith Hurd from the Curie Institute in Paris explained to me. The X chromosome is actually fairly large. It, it actually carries about 1,000 genes, so it's, it's one of the bigger chromosomes, uh, at least in, in humans and, and mice. The fact that females have two of these and males only have one means that actually it could cause serious problems in terms of the amount of protein products produced from uh, the female X versus the uh, male X. So, so this is an imbalance that is actually uh, intolerable during development. And we know that a female that doesn't manage to deal with this imbalance, to have this double dose of the X chromosomes, actually dies very quickly. How do females cope with this? What do they do to to even out the amount of, of stuff that they're getting from their X chromosomes? In mammals, the way this happens is that one of the two Xs is actually shut down. So the chromosome stays there. There are two Xs. The DNA is there but one of the two chromosomes actually becomes transcriptionally silent. So that means its genes are no longer expressed. The genes are still physically there, but they just are no longer read. They don't produce RNA and they don't produce protein. So basically, you go from a double dose in terms of DNA, but only a single dose in terms of the RNA and the protein that's produced uh, from the female uh, X chromosome or from the female double X chromosome. So, so female cells produce the same amount of X-linked RNA and protein as male cells do, and that's how the balance is achieved. So they've basically just switched one of them completely off? Almost completely. It turns out that there is actually one small part of the X chromosome that is identical to the Y chromosome, and it's called the pseudo-autosomal region. So that little bit of the chromosome actually stays on. We don't know exactly how it manages to avoid this shutting down, but it stays on and it's present in a double dose. But that's okay because males actually have a double dose as well because they have it on their Y and on their X. And there are also actually a few other genes on the X chromosome that aren't in this pseudo-autosomal region that seem to escape from this process of shutting down this uh, X chromosome inactivation process. And again, we're not quite sure why, but we think that for some of them it could be important that they escape, and it might be something that is um, female-specific or maybe uh, XX-specific. You need to have a little bit more of some products on the, from the X chromosome in females. But overall, of those 1,000 genes, uh, the, the overwhelming majority are actually shut down, and this happens very early on in development. Overall, it's actually fairly stable. And in somatic cells, once the inactive X is shut down, its state is very, very stably propagated. Explain to me a little bit about how this process actually happens. How do you go from having two X chromosomes in a, in a developing embryo at this very early stage to, in an adult female, all her cells just have one active X chromosome? What happens? What's the journey? So the journey is complex, and we really don't understand it very well, but one of the, the mammals that we've looked at most, or we in general have looked at, is the mouse. And we think that the way it works in the mouse, at least, and probably also in humans, is that there's a trigger to this process um, that is this uh, RNA that's called the X-inactive-specific transcript. And this RNA is only expressed from the X chromosome that will become shut down. So this RNA is switched on early on in development, and somehow 
in a female cell, this RNA, or the gene that produces it, knows that only one copy needs to be switched on. So it produces this RNA, and it's an amazing RNA because it actually coats the whole chromosome. It, it sort of smothers it. Um, and this, this coating of the chromosome is actually what leads to gene silencing. And we don't know how that works. At the molecular level, we actually have no clue how this exist RNA does its job. But once it's done its job, then it's no longer important because there are other changes that happen at the level of what's called chromatin. So the DNA uh, of the chromosome that's going to get shut down is, is wrapped up in uh, proteins and, and chromatin, the way the rest of the genome is actually, but the chromatin of the X that's going to get shut down starts to change. It starts to take on new uh, modifications, new flavors, we call them, so new proteins associate with it. And we think that these changes actually are what lock in the silent state. So exist RNA triggers the process, and then these chromatin changes help to um, keep the silent state silent all through cell division. So as the cells divide, the X that was shut down will always be the one that gets shut down. It won't suddenly wake up and remember it should have been active. It actually stays inactive thanks to these different changes that are mostly at the chromatin level, and this is what we call epigenetics. These epigenetic changes are changes that actually allow a stable silencing uh, of a state, and in the case of the X, it's almost the whole X, and once the stable silencing has set up, it's the epigenetic marks that allow its propagation through cell divisions. And this is quite unusual because most RNAs, you think, well, it's a gene, it becomes active, it makes an RNA that goes off and tells the cell to make a protein. So this is quite weird. Are there any other RNAs that are like this, this X inactivation transcript? So it, it used to be quite weird. It was discovered 20 years ago, or over 20 years ago, this exist RNA. And somehow it only accumulates over the chromosome that is, it's, it's produced from. And that's a big mystery as well. How does it stay associated in cis, as we say, with the chromosome that produces it? So um, it did seem to be a very weird kind of RNA. But actually, in the last few years, there's been a, a whole flurry of discoveries of RNAs that seem to be or like exist. The problem is we don't actually understand how exist works, and we know even less, I think, about how these other non-coding RNAs work. And although we can try to make parallels, it's not clear, actually, whether any two non-coding RNAs or non-protein coding RNAs are doing the same thing or behaving in the same way. So I think this is really a very um, recent and emerging field of um, non-coding RNA uh, biology that lots and lots of people are now working on. But as I said, EXIST was discovered over 20 years ago, and we still have no clue exactly how it does what it does. And I think that's going to be the situation for many of these non-coding RNAs. So I think it's a very exciting field, and lots of people are talking about non-coding RNAs now, but actually... I'm still not sure what they're all doing, and I especially don't know what Exist is doing, even though I've worked on it for so long. That was Professor Edith Hurd from the Curie Institute in Paris. Now it's time to look at your burning genetics questions with the help of naked scientist Martha Enriquez. How does the body make fingerprints? Listener McGrath in South Africa wanted to know whether the same prints get regenerated after an accident like a burn. Eli Sprecher, the director of the dermatology unit at Tel Aviv Saraski Medical Centre, says no. Fingerprints, as you know, are characteristic of every individual human being, and actually they are 
not identical, even in identical twins, which means that the formation is influenced not only by genetic or inner characteristic of the individual, but also by uh, some environmental uh, stimuli. So they uh, actually form uh, as a result of some uh, interaction between the upper part of the skin, which is called the epidermis, and the lower part of the skin, which projects into the upper part of the skin and is called the dermis. And when this lower part of the skin is affected by any form of trauma, might be burn uh, or, you know, some uh, uh, treatment with some form of acid, then the signal transmitted from the dermis to the epidermis is lost. And as a consequence, the fingerprints are either malformed or do not form at all. And what do we know about how fingerprints are formed in development in the first place? Now, we know very, very little about what are the mechanisms and the signals at the molecular level which are regulating the formation of uh, fingerprints. Actually, one of the, the only truly significant piece of knowledge that we have about that is coming from the study of a very rare disease where people are actually lacking fingerprints from birth. So by studying this disease, it appears that there is one protein that is missing in these uh, individuals, which is called SARCAT1. And this is actually the only piece of information that we have so far about the molecular mechanism uh, regulating the formation of fingerprints. So it's still uh, quite a mystery. That was Eli Bracker at the Suraski Medical Centre in Tel Aviv. If you've got any questions about genes, DNA and genetics you want us to answer, just email them to genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Genetics or post on the Naked Scientist Facebook page. And finally, our gene of the month is Antennapedia, which literally means antenna feet. As you might have guessed from the name, fruit flies with a faulty version of Antennapedia have an extra pair of legs growing out of their head where their antenna should be. It's a type of gene known as a homeotic gene, responsible for controlling the overall organisation of body parts like the limbs, wings, head and so on. While fruit flies have just eight of these crucial genes, mammals have up to four clusters of related genes, known as Hox genes, with each cluster containing up to 11 genes. And although mistakes in human Hox genes don't lead to legs growing out of our heads, faults in the genes are responsible for major developmental defects, showing that these crucial genes share common jobs across the whole animal kingdom. That's all for now. I'll be back again next month, and we'll be discussing how genes influence our immune system. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page. That's nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. And don't forget that every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes or online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes. Genetics.